FOMO. Dating is a skill. You know, love is natural, but dating is a skill. And we're not born knowing how to date. And it actually does take time to understand how do I present myself? How do I handle a first date? How do I make dates fun? And people should understand that the environment makes it tough and that if they're struggling, it's not just them. That's Logan Yuri, author of How to Not Die Alone. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens. With the world spinning out of control, it can be impossible to know what to do and what to miss out on. That's called FOMO, which is short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term and I'm the world's first FOMologist. And this is the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers, people I call FOMO sapiens, how they live and work with conviction no matter what life throws at them. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens. Now, if you're listening to this episode on the day it comes out, it is February 11th, three days before Valentine's Day. Now, that can be something that you're looking forward to. You could be dreading it. But I'll tell you something. Even if you're listening to this episode in the middle of the summer, way far away from Valentine's Day, if you or someone you know is looking for love, this episode is going to be clutch because we're going to figure you out. We're going to sort you out today. Now, here's the thing about love. You know what murders love? Phobo. Phobo, indecision, when you're trying to date people and you are looking for bigger and better and you keep swiping and swiping and swiping, it's a killer on the love front. There's some other stuff too, we'll get into them later on, but I wanted to make sure that we tackle these so that you can have a very chill Valentine's Day. And that's why I called in Logan Yuri to help us fix your dating life or to help you fix somebody else's. Logan is a behavioral scientist turned dating coach. As the director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge, she leads a research team dedicated to helping people to find love. And she has a really interesting background because she studied psychology at Harvard, where she did some experiments that she'll talk about later. Uh, they're a little edgy. And then she moved on and ran Google's behavioral science team. It's called the Irrational Lab, and then created the popular interview series, Toxic Google Modern Romance. Her new book is called How to Not Die Alone. Well, that's subtle. <laughs> the surprising science that will help you find love and it's out now. Now, <laughs> I just I can't even with that title. Here's the, I just still can't. Now, if you don't want to die broke, there's something else you can do. And that's go to Himalaya.com slash part-time. There is my first ever audio course, how to be a part-time entrepreneur. We will get you sorted. Everybody needs a side hustle, a second career. You can't rely on one job only, and you can start with just one thing and get on to many more. I have like 20-something at this point, and so that is what the course is about. So head over to Himalaya.com slash part-time, use the code part-time, and you get a free trial to check out the course, really hearing good things about it. So I want you to go check it out today. All right, now on to the interview. So as I mentioned, Logan has a really interesting background. She's a fascinating human being, as you will soon see in the interview. And so I wanted to start our conversation by asking her, how exactly does one go from studying psychology at Harvard to being a behavioral scientist to being a dating expert? Yeah, sometimes I ask myself the same question. And so I really look back at what my motivations are. So I've been interested in dating and relationships for a long time, and I trace this back to what happened to me when I was in high school, which is that my parents went from having this, what I thought was a very happy marriage and kind of the happily ever after to 
what felt to me like a very sudden divorce. And ever since then, since the age of 17, I've realized that you can't take relationships for granted. So that was very motivating for me to understand, well, if you can't take relationships for granted, what are the things that you can do? What's the effort that you can put in to actually make this work? And so in college, some of the ways that this played out included a paper that I wrote called Porn to be Wild, where I was investigating the porn habits of Harvard students. And that was very interesting. And it was just great to basically apply some of this sexuality and relationships interest to the field of psychology and sociology. When I graduated from Harvard, my first job was at Google and I had a funny role. I ran the porn pod, which was managing the Google ads for uh, different porn clients, uh, sex toy operators, things like that. So it was interesting. I don't want to get pigeonholed as the porn person, but I certainly <laughs> have had some interesting academic research in that area. But really what was life-changing was having the opportunity at Google to run the Irrational Lab, and that's Google's behavioral science team. So I paired up with the behavioral economics great Dan Ariely, and together we applied behavioral science insights to Google products, Google marketing, and even at points, Google employees. And so I really went to Dan Ariely University, and I had the opportunity to basically take what I had always been interested in, how people make decisions, and learn a lot about it from Dan, and actually run experiments and do things to improve Google. But as I said, my interest was always in dating and relationships. And at the time I was running the Irrational Lab, I was also single and I was struggling with dating. People around me were struggling. And so I started applying behavioral science to dating to help people make better decisions in their dating lives. And so the first form of that was starting an interview series at Google called Talks at Google Modern Romance. And from there, I actually started as a dating coach. And eventually, I just said, I'm so interested in this. I think this is a unique unique angle. Nobody else is really applying behavioral science to love. And so I quit my job, started pursuing this stuff full time. And now that's taken the form of my new book and also my role at Hinge as the director of relationship science. Tudo bem, meus queridos fomos sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. So we use this this phrase behavioral science all the time and I use it, but I don't actually think I know how I would define it. So what is the definition? And I guess what are the what are the levers that you're looking at with respect to the dating world? The definition I use is the study of how we make decisions. So you can think about it as decision-making theory, sort of what are our motivations, what's getting in the way, what are the cognitive biases impacting us. And sort of one of the motivating questions is, why are we so often acting out of our own best interest? And I'm sure you've heard this many times, but it's the idea of why do we say that we'll save money and then 
buy an expensive new rug when there's a West Elm sale? Or why do we say we want to lose weight, but then we quit our diet the next day when we pass a Dunkin' Donuts? And so we're so often acting against our own best interest, and it's an exploration of why. But really, the second part of behavioral science is the behavioral science toolkit, applied behavioral science. How do we take what we know about how people make decisions and how they are predictably irrational, and how do we use those insights to shift their behavior? For example, one of my favorite pieces of research, which I apply in the book, is you can get more people to vote by reinforcing their identity as a voter. So if you say to one set of people, are you planning to vote tomorrow? some of them will vote. If you say to other people, are you a voter? And they say, yes, I'm a voter. And then you say, are you planning to vote tomorrow? The people in that second category are more likely to vote simply because you've reinforced their identity as a voter. And in the book, I apply that by helping what I call the hesitator, people who are waiting to date, waiting until they're 100% ready or perfect. And I say, you need to self-identify as a dater, and I have some exercises to do that. But yes, in general, behavioral science is the idea that we often make decisions not in our own best interests, but that there are a series of tools or nudges that we can use to help you actually close that gap between your intention and your action. Perfect. And so you apply this to the dating world, and we all you know, many people listen to this podcast are in the dating world. Lots of people are not in the dating world and they're probably like, phew, I am so glad to not be in the dating world because let's just think about it. It's apps. It is a pandemic. It is just a lot of, a lot of complications and changes. So what, as somebody who is in that world, you work every day at Hinge, which is one of the leading dating apps. What is the state of play of the dating world right now? Yeah. So I can speak about that generally, and I can also speak to what's going on during the pandemic. So the first chapter of my book is called Why Dating is Harder Now Than Ever Before. And that's purposely provocative. Obviously, there are some things about dating right now that are better than before. For example, in these so-called thin markets, people over 50, LGBTQ+, it's much easier to date with the dating apps because you have access to people in your demographic, whereas before it might have been hard to find those people. But there are a series of things about dating now that really do make it challenging. And one of them, one that I'm sure your listeners have heard of a lot, is the paradox of choice. Just the idea that it's so hard to choose. We have analysis paralysis. Um, even when you make a choice, you doubt if you made the right one. And Patrick, I know that that's the crux of a lot of a lot of your FOMO. We and call that FOBO around here. Yeah. So there we go. So we have we have FOBO. We also have the idea that our identities are something that we define. So in the past, culture told us who we were, right? Your culture told us um, how you spend your day, what kind of God or gods you believed in, what diet you ate, what your job was, and who you would marry. And now all of that is up to us. And while that's empowering, we get to write our own story, it means that our successes and our failures are completely on us. And dating is actually something really new. Dating really didn't become the thing that we know until around the 1890s. And so we've been doing this for not very long. And in the past, marriage was a thing of convenience. It was based on economic possibilities or maybe my parcel of land is next to your parcel of land. So we should we should combine them. And love was something that you would maybe feel once or twice in your life, but probably not in marriage. And so we now have this idea that our marriages have to be this love and passion-filled event and that we need to find the person. We don't have help from our family or our matchmaker. 
add to that the fact that there's a lot of pressure to find the right person. Sheryl Sandberg says, especially for women, the partner that you choose is one of the most important decisions that you can make in your life, especially if you want to have a big career. So there's more choice than ever before. There's FOBO. There's the fact that our identities are written by us and there's a lot of choices. There's the fact that there's more pressure than ever before. Dating is a skill. You know, love is natural, but dating is a skill. And we're not born knowing how to date. And it actually does take time to understand how do I present myself? How do I handle a first date? How do I make dates fun? And people should understand that the environment makes it tough and that if they're struggling, it's not just them. Yeah. And then you think about, I mean, you mentioned this with the FOBO. So think back to like Downton Abbey, right? I mean, that's kind of the, I mean, they had, they, they kind of got all, everything because they're like rich, beautiful, and apparently loved each other too. Eventually I, I watched the show and it's sort of like, okay, but you know, you you only have like five people really that and your parents are involved and they sort of set them up for you. And it's, it's a relatively simple process nowadays, whether it's dating or whether it's like what to watch on Netflix, we're all overwhelmed with choice that drives the FOBO of course. And then you mentioned earlier the pandemic. So yeah, we, then we fast forward to 2020, 2021, because it continues. We are living in a pandemic and I know that you have a, a privileged perch into, into which you can see the activities of people and how the dating has changed in the pandemic. So what are you seeing there? Yeah, there's a couple really interesting stats that I can point to. So one is that before the pandemic, almost no one had tried video dating. And now the majority of Hinge users have actually tried a video date. And many of them say that they'll continue doing this after the pandemic is over. So that's really inserting a new step into dating, which is fascinating to observe because, you know, dating is a pretty straightforward thing at this point um, in terms of like the steps that you take. Another thing is that we have seen ghosting go down by 27%. And some of that we can attribute to the fact that people are just being more intentional about who they contact, and they're also being more empathetic. It's a hard time for everyone. And so Hinge users tell us that they're being more selective about who they go after and more intentional in how they communicate with those people. And intentionality is a big theme in my book, and it's also something that we've seen emerge during the pandemic. The title of my book is How to Not Die Alone. And some people find that a little triggering. They're like, why are you making me feel bad? But that's sort of the point. It's on purpose. It's to make you say, wait, I might be on a path towards dying alone and I don't want that. What changes do I need to make to my life to go on a different path? And it's really, it's that it's that feeling of fear that actually can, can change your behavior. And I think the pandemic has had a very similar effect. People who weren't prioritizing dating they now have spent a lot of time by themselves, sheltering in place alone, not a lot of interaction. And they've said, I'm going to prioritize this because I'm on a path towards dying alone and I need to make changes. And so we've really seen that in Hinge. People tell us that they're breaking bad dating habits, they're developing new ones, and sort of the fear, the anxiety, the isolation of the pandemic has motivated people to actually be more more intentional in their dating, more thoughtful, making better decisions, and really just prioritizing relationships and not just assuming that it'll happen when it happens. Yeah. And if you're triggered by the title, How to Not Die Alone, why don't you, you know, you can flip that around, How to Not Wake Up Alone, because you only die once. I mean, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> whereas you wake up every day. And so uh, the point is well taken. The idea that you have people who, and I live in New York City, right? And so I see it all the time. I mean, you people just... They're, they're very, uh, there's a lot of FOMO, there's a lot of activity, there's a lot going on. And so they're not really thinking through their choices. And I think the pandemic has forced people to prioritize, which is a good thing. Now you talk about in the book, which is, uh, I really enjoyed reading and you have all these quizzes. I took a quiz in there and uh, <laughs> I'll let you guess which one I am, but you have three tendencies that you talk about that people who 
they need to break if they're going to be able to sort of meet that special person. So what are the three tendencies? Yes. So as I was doing my dating coaching, I realized that I had a lot of different types of clients, but many of them seem to suffer from the same dating blind spots. And these are patterns of behavior or attitudes that are holding them back from finding love, but which they can't identify on their own. So I've categorized these into a framework called the three dating tendencies. The first one is the romanticizer. And the romanticizer has unrealistic expectations of relationships. They expect relationships to be that initial feeling of excitement, that falling in love. They expect that Prince Charming or Princess Ariel to find them. And they think that love should be effortless, that there's a soulmate out there for them. And they really believe that if a relationship feels like it's work, you're doing it wrong. And so what's wrong with the romanticizer is that they are not willing to put in the effort into both finding someone and keeping a relationship. And my advice in the book is to shift from what we call the soulmate mindset to the work it out mindset. And the work it out mindset is the idea that someone may not come in the package that you expect and that if you're putting work into your relationship, you're actually doing it right. The second type is the maximizer. And Patrick, I would guess that that's what you got on the oh, quiz. Guilty as charged. It was. <laughs> there we go. I was like, man, I'm so predictable. It's awful. Okay, keep going. Well, you're consistent. <laughs> okay. So we could call the maximizer also the FOBO dater, if you'd Love like. It. And the maximizer, they have unrealistic expectations of their partner. And so the maximizer is someone who goes out into the world and says, I want to do research. I want to turn over every stone. Only when I've seen the complete set can I make a decision. I want to be 100% certain about who I walk down the aisle with. And they are constantly saying things like, could I be 5% happier with someone else? They're always trying to optimize. And they're very focused on the grass is always greener. They think there could be somebody else out there that's better for them. And in the book, I compare them to the satisficer. And these are maximizer and satisficer are two concepts from Herbert Simon. And it's the idea that a maximizer wants to turn over every stone and then make a decision. And the satisficer creates a benchmark or a bar. And once they have satisfied that benchmark, then they can actually um, invest in that decision. And the thing is that maximizers are focused on the quote unquote objective best decision and satisficers are more focused on how they feel about their decisions. And my advice there is that it's much more about how you feel about your decision than making the objective right decision and that we should really learn from the wisdom of satisficers. Yeah. And the thing here is, and I write about this in, in, my, in my book about FOMO and FOMO is, uh, and this is, you know, uh, this is, goes back to the paradox of choice and Schwartz, who, whose work is amazing and incredibly written before any of this stuff existed in terms of apps and social media is that even if the maximizer does make a better decision because they've done tons of work and they objectively do make a better decision, they are less happy anyway because they have all these feelings of regret about the road untaken. So I will own that I am a maximizer, but I work very hard to get out of that. Now, what is the third tendency? The third tendency is the hesitator, and they suffer from unrealistic expectations of themselves. And so what this means is they are the type of person who says, I'll be ready to date when dot, dot, dot. I'll be ready to date when I lose 10 pounds. I'll be ready to date when I get a more impressive job. I'll be ready to date when I relocate for school. And they think that there's this perfect moment at which they point they will be 100% ready and then they are capable of going out there and dating. But the main mistake that they're making 
is that they are underestimating the opportunity cost of waiting to date. And those are two things. One, they are not getting better at dating. Dating is a skill. And similar to stand-up comedy, the only way to get better at dating is by doing it in front of an audience. And the second one is that they are missing out on the chance to figure out what kind of person they want to be with. And so the advice to them is to just get out there and start dating. And that's what I said about reinforcing the identity of the dater. But there are other things that you can do. Set a deadline, have an accountability buddy, just download the apps, get some good pictures and say to yourself, I'm going to try to go on at least one date a week. And I'm actually just going to get out there because there is no such thing as hundred percent ready to date. And you're never going to be perfect. And the person that you end up with is not going to be perfect either. And so tell us a story about somebody who applied these concepts and was able to overcome their, I don't want to say deficiency because that sounds a little judgmental, but overcome their challenge when it came to dating. Yeah. So one of the characters I talk about in the book is this woman, Maya, and Maya was the quintessential romanticizer. So she had this idea that Prince Charming was going to come along. She was the kind of person who would get very dressed up for a flight in case she would meet someone, but then she would never approach someone because that would be too unromantic. And she was very focused on the how we met story, uh, the perfect person with the perfect external package. And she knew she would say to herself, I'll know it when I see it. And in the beginning, working with Maya was really challenging because whenever I would help her become more practical and to focus on the things that really matter, she would get very defensive and she would say, why are you making me give up on my dream? Everybody else gets their epic love story and I don't. And she was just so attached to this concept of the soulmate, the effortless relationship and the physical package. And together we worked on the fact that there are so many more important things than you know, making six figures and being over six feet tall. And through our work together, she was able to reframe what matters, what doesn't. And she met someone. And this was a totally different person than the type of person she thought she would wind up with. I say in the book, he doesn't hold doors open for her. He doesn't have the best table manners, but he makes her feel alive. He makes her feel desired. He makes her feel happy. And he's completely different from this Prince Charming who she thought she would brush fingers with while choosing the perfect tomato at the farmer's market. And she realized it's so much more about the connection that you have with someone and the side of you they bring out than that happily ever after meet cute moment from the romantic comedy. And I would just like to put something out there for all men under the six foot bar, because I'm five, seven. We're more efficient. We use less carbon. And so therefore we're actually a better bang for your buck because we come in a smaller package. So Definitely go for the shorter guys, all the ladies out there. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. There is actually a lot in the book about how people are so off about these height minimums. And yeah, just a very practical piece of advice for anyone listening is expand your age preferences, expand your height preferences. The fact that you think you need to date someone of a certain height or age, you could very much be wrong about that. And you are so much better off being open-minded and exploring different types of people than saying to yourself, I totally know what I what I want and I just have to find that person. No, you might actually be quite wrong about who will make you happy long-term. And that's something that I came across over and over again as I talked to people who had overcome their bad habits and found love. How's this going to look in the future? Let's jump ahead 10 years. So we know, I mean, Gen Z is very different to the millennials who are very different than Gen X and, and so on and so forth. So you see all this data, you see user behavior, where are things going? 
So my first response is that video is obviously a big thing. I had actually had some doubts about video in the past. I had thought people are going to do a five-minute video and write each other off, and this is really bad for the person who's not immediately charming and hot. And I actually had doubts about video, and I have been proved completely wrong. Video has been a really effective and successful way for people to date, and that's because it, it offers this low-pressure vibe check. It's this opportunity to say, do I like the sound of your voice? Am I curious about you? Do we have the same sense of humor? And so I I think we're really just at the beginning of the video dating revolution. The second thing that's fascinating about Gen Z is just how fluid they are in terms of gender identity, um, sexual orientation, who they're open to dating. And I don't have the exact stat off the top of my head, but we did do a LGBTQ plus pride report last summer. And to just see, we separated the groups into three categories, older millennials, younger millennials, and Gen Z. And the numbers for Gen Z around fluidity and all the different identities were so fascinating. And so I think we're just going to see a lot more people exploring not just different ways to, or sorry, not just different types of people to date, but actually different ways to be in relationship. And so whether that's um, redefining models for monogamy, figuring out what it means to be in a polyamorous relationship. I think that we are just at the beginning of the revolution of figuring out the fact that relationships can be disrupted and there's many different types of ways to be in relationship. Sounds like maybe topic for your next book as you start thinking about that. Now, uh, I do, I do want to, before we close, I just want to talk about an article you just wrote in the New York times modern love section, which I'm sure many people listening read it's, you know, it's iconic, right? And you wrote this really beautiful piece called we needed more significant others. And I think, you know, as we were talking before the interview, this is a book about dating, yeah, but it's also a book about relationships, and relationships are super important. We've all seen this year how we've, you know, all kept each other from, you know, staying under the covers all day. So I just would love for you to share with the listeners a little bit about the story and what you learned and wrote about in Modern Love. Yes, it would be my pleasure, and thanks for the opportunity. So in the book, I talk about how I swiped left on my now husband, on Tinder. And I like starting there because of the idea that someone who has made me so happy, somebody who I've committed to, when I saw them on a dating app, I wasn't interested in them at all. And in the book, I go into the fact that I actually saw a dating coach myself and that helped me figure out what mattered to me. And I ended up dating and now marrying this guy who I had known for many, many years and who I consider a slow burn, somebody who gets more interesting to you over time. What I talk about specifically in The Modern Love is the very intense and challenging year that I've had during the pandemic. So in early spring of last year, Scott, my husband, was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, which is a rare form of bone cancer that afflicts around 800 Americans a year. And he had it in his ankle, which required him to have a below-the-knee amputation. And we had been engaged already, and we were supposed to get married that summer. We canceled it because of COVID. And basically, we had this really intense week where um, – The night before our wedding, we had a foot roast where all of our friends gathered on a rooftop and they came together and made fun of cancer and amputations and Scott. The next day we got married with a small group of friends, socially distanced in Golden Gate Park. And the day after that, we had um, Scott's surgery. And it was just so challenging. It was all the difficult parts about 
a cancer diagnosis in your 30s, plus the isolation and anxiety of the pandemic. And it was really just such a hard time. And a two friends of mine had started a commune, a co-owned living house called Radish. And it's a series of one-bedroom apartments and um, a communal kitchen. And we went there for dinner one night and I just said, they are doing this right. They are doing the pandemic correctly. They are laughing. They are having fun. And we got really lucky for the first time in a while. And we were able to get a one bedroom first floor apartment, which of course mattered for accessibility. And we moved in. And I say in the article, it felt like turning off the lights after months of being in the dark and just being around people, having these communal dinners, having a friend to go on a walk with for 10 minutes after your meeting. It was such an amazing way to get support. And there's a concept from Elaine Chung of Northwestern and Eli Finkel, he calls it other significant others. And the idea is that we are not meant to go through life alone and we're not meant to go through life with just one partner. We actually need more people in our lives to serve discrete needs. And couples who have different people to play different roles in their lives are happier and have more successful relationships. And so in the article, I talk about the fact that Radish and my fellow housemates have become my other significant others. And it's been such a challenging year, but because of these relationships, and because of the support, I actually think Scott and I are doing really well and we're doing as well as could be expected. And my advice for anyone who's listening, who's going through a hard time, whether it's cancer or just the isolation of the pandemic is how can you invest in your community? How can you find discrete, or how can you find people to meet discrete needs? How can you take more pressure off your relationship and actually just invest in those other significant others, those OSOs? Amazing. And the entire FOMO Sapiens community sends all our love to you and Scott and wishes you much luck. All right. The book is How to Not Die Alone. You can check out loganyuri.com to take the quiz and find out which tendency you have. I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of maximizers and FOBO in this crowd. And on Instagram, she's at Logan Yuri. Logan, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. FOMO. Big news, we now have a brand new website. So head over to FOMOSapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show and find out how to advertise. Also head over to Spotify where you can find and follow playlists of the best of the show. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis and on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMOSapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.